0: This afternoon we've come to Lords Day 35 in the Heilberg Catechism and an explanation of the Second Commandment in which God says you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath. Lords Day 35 where we confess the following, what does God require in the Second Commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. May we then not make any image at all. God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as... Books for the laity, that is, for the people who are listening. No, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught, not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. Congregation after the sermon will respond together by singing once again from Psalm 135. And we'll sing the stanzas 7, 8, and 10. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, that includes you, boys and girls who are members of God's covenant and congregation. This afternoon, we've come to the Second Commandment, in which God demands that we are not to make an image of him. And in the Catechism, we confess that that means that we are not to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. So we may not portray God or serve him in our own manner, Because he is a holy and awesome God, the creator of heaven and earth. And he is is sovereign over everything that he has made. And everything is subject to his will and his commands. So there's a boundary then between the creator and everything that he has made. A boundary between us and God. So in that sense we speak of the God who is far above us. He is wholly, totally different than we are. He is the High and the Exalted One, the Eternal God. As Paul says, he dwells in unapproachable light, and his name is Holy. However, at the same time, this command also comes to us from the Lord, all capital letters. You may know that... In our English Bibles when you ever see every time you see the name Lord in capital letters that's a reference to the Hebrew name Yahweh the covenant name of God I am who I am or the God who is So this command not only comes us comes to us from the God who is far above us but also from our covenant God He gives us his law and his word and he shows us how to live in his image And by giving us his law, he is telling us that he wants to have a relationship with us. And so the law shows us that there is both a distance between us and God, but also communion between us and our covenant God. He is both transcendent, that is, he is unequaled, he is unmatched, supernatural, but at the same time he is near to us. And so this afternoon I proclaim to you both sides of this commandment. And I've summarized it this way. In the second commandment, the Lord commands us to worship him as he has revealed himself in his word. That is, in the first place, as God our creator, right? The transcendent God. And secondly, as Yahweh, our covenant God, the God who is nearby. So we're not to make a carved image of God. That means, in the first place, that we may not try to imagine what God looks like. We may not attempt to portray him in any way and certainly not worship or honor any such image. And when we hear this command, we might think, well, that has more to do with how ancient people used to live, right? Pagans used to make images and bow down to them, right? But we ought to remind ourselves of what the Apostle Paul writes in the first chapter of Romans. It's clear from Romans 1 that idol worship and idolatry affects everyone. Because what really is idolatry? Well, idolatry, Paul says, is when people who know God don't honor him as God or give thanks to him. Idolatry is to apply human qualities to the divine nature, human characteristics, to the infinite and unfathomable God who created heaven and earth. Idolatry is to measure the creator according to the limitations of what he has made. And in this way, human beings attempt to control God. They attempt to force God into their mold. Right? We know that's very typical of paganism. Right? The Romans and Greeks, for example, and also the ancient Canaanites and others, they had idols that they could carry around and they could put those idols wherever they pleased. They placed their idols everywhere. They adorned their streets and their houses and even the insides of their homes and marketplaces with all kinds of idols. And in this way, they felt they had some kind of control over their God. They placed their gods in positions of service to them. That's also what the Israelites did, for example, at Mount Sinai. Shortly after they had received the Ten Commandments, Moses went up onto the mountain and he stayed away for 40 days, and the Israelites thought, said to themselves, well, this is not the kind of God we want, this, is, this God is not talking to us anymore, and, and we don't know what happened to his servant Moses, he's been gone for 40 days, so they said to Aaron, make a God for us who will go before us to Egypt, so they created this golden calf out of gold, that's something they could pick up and move at their own will, and at their own discretion, and put it down whenever they felt they had gone far enough. But the exalted God, who had appeared to them on the mountain, the one who had spoken to them, who said, I want to have a covenant with you, well, they they gave up on him. They had enough of that. They were not willing to wait. So they made up their mind to serve him in their own way. And later... When they lived in Canaan, they did something similar. They served God in various places, even though he had commanded them to serve him and worship him only in the tabernacle. But to give a very specific example, during the, the judgeship of Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas, the Israelites were at war with the Philistines. And they went to battle against the Philistines, and they lost the battle, so what did they do? They said, well, let's go to the tabernacle, let's get the ark, and we'll take the ark into battle with us. And that way, God will have to be on our side, and then we will win the battle. Right? They thought they had power over God, they could bend Him, His will to their needs. And that's really what the second commandment is about about having this idea about God that is not how he has revealed himself. It's our attempt to conform God to what we want him to be and to put limitations on God. We do that, for example, when we think that God doesn't take sin very seriously. Or we think that he is willing to allow us to bend the rules a little bit because, well, our circumstances are very... Special. For example, someone might say, since God hasn't given me a life partner, he will understand if I satisfy my sexual needs outside of marriage, even though God has expressly forbidden this in his word. Not taking God at his word is a sin against the second commandment. Because what does scripture say about God? We read in Isaiah, to whom then would you liken God? Or what likeness would you compare him with? You see, God is the incomprehensible one. He is infinite and unlimited. And his power cannot be measured by any human standards. And so there's not even a part of him that we can portray with an image. There is an immeasurable boundary between God and us. It's the infinite versus the finite, the unlimited versus the limited. And this should fill us with the true fear of God in the biblical sense of the word. It should make us stand in awe and fear of God, our creator, the sovereign Lord of the universe. But at the same time, the immeasurable greatness and the infinite power of God should also fill us with gratitude and comfort. And that's because God's grace and mercy are also infinite and unlimited. That's also an aspect of who God is, His mercy and grace. And that's also an aspect that we may not make an image of. Because just think about it. What is your only comfort when you come before a holy God, knowing that you are a sinner? Is it not because of His grace and mercy? And that his grace and mercy are infinite. Your sins are great, but his grace is much greater. Your sins are many, but his mercy is endless. So then, if this is not how we would think about God, then then how would we ever dare come before him? Because every day we sin, we daily increase our debts, as we confess elsewhere in the catechism. But the Lord is never tired of listening to our prayers for mercy. Isaiah says he is not faint or grow weary. He is not a human, he's not like a like a man that, that our sins would become too much for him, as if he can't handle it. So when it comes to our salvation too, we have to say with Isaiah, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Who has ever fathomed the depth of God's grace? Think of what Paul writes in Romans 11. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? So you see, congregation, that behind the grace that we receive stands this infinite, eternal, transcendent God. And Isaiah makes that clear too in how he ends this chapter. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Those who wait for the Lord, who expect their God to be Yahweh, who wait and expect... for, wait for and expect the wonderful love of this God, they will renew their strength. They will never be tired in their walk with the Lord because God's grace is without end. His mercies are new every morning. So those who put their trust in the one who is eternal have a, a bottomless, and endless source of strength to live from every day. And when we, when we understand this, then the sins against this commandment also become more obvious, right? And our sins, the sins of those who know the Lord, our sins against this commandment are actually worse than the sins of ignorant pagans and unbelievers. Because our sins against this commandment are, are done in the context of the covenant, That's clear from the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods before my face, in my presence. Well, what then is idolatry and idol worship before the face of God? Well, that is when in our minds or in our attitudes, we in any way, shape, or form limit God that we limit his power, we limit his anger against sin, but also if we limit his grace, if we doubt his word, if we make him to be smaller than what he really is. If we think, for example, that my sins are way too great to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, it might, at first, when you first hear something like that, it might sound really pious, but it's actually idolatry. Because then we're thinking of God in an earthly manner. We're putting limits on Christ's sacrifice when we talk like that. And if God's divine grace doesn't move us or fill us with awe, or having known his grace, we, we forsake him, then, then we're making a carved image of who God is. We're limiting who he is. When was the last time you trembled in fear because God is a holy God? Or when was the last time you wanted to burst out in song because you experienced His grace and His mercy? I think sometimes for those of us who grow up in the church, we kind of get used to being Christians if I can say it that way. And then we sometimes get apathetic. We get used to being a Christian. We get so familiar with praying for the forgiveness of our sins, so familiar with that, in fact, that we no longer tremble. And if that's the case, then we're basically Christians who are walking around with an image of God tucked under our arms. And then grace is kind of like somebody offering you something on a plate. God simply is a kindly gentleman who offers you the plate and you take what you need when you need it. But then we've lost sight of the overwhelming truth and power of God's word. And that's because we're not any different than God's Old Testament people. We're just like the Israelites who wanted to carry God with them so that he would do what they wanted and what they thought they needed. It's kind of like when you're in a car, you can control things, right? You control the throttle and the brake and the steering wheel, so the car goes where you want it to go. You control the power of the engine. Well, we all too easily want to put God under the hood of our lives, don't we? And the danger is great that when we speak of the Lord our God, we put the emphasis on the word our instead of on the Lord or God. And of course, it's true that the Lord is our God, and praise God that we may say that. But then let's put the emphasis where it belongs. He is the God by whom and through whom and to whom we live. And he doesn't fit under the hood of your lives And he doesn't fit under the hood of the Reformed faith either, or even under the hood of the Reformed confessions. But we live under the cover of his grace. And even in this regard, congregation, it's so easy for us to make graven images. There's many ways in which we can limit God. He is not limited to how we confess him in the creeds, for example in the Apostles' Creed or the other creeds. He's not limited to how we describe him in our confessions. He's not even limited to what he has revealed to us in the Bible. That might sound strange, but it's true. There's more to God than what he has revealed to us. He hasn't revealed everything about himself to us, has he? And so we may not limit him in this manner either. And if we think that via our confessions and creeds we can fully understand God, then then we are also limiting Him. And besides that, sometimes if it's easy to fall into the trap of of making our prayers and our our, our Bible reading and our worship services. To make those things into graven images. As if those things are more important than God's love and grace. As if these things should just be our religious duty instead of the means by which we experience God. By which we experience his beauty. As we heard from Psalm 27 this morning. If we just perform our religious activities out of custom. Or even out of a sense of guilt, we haven't seen God for who he is. And then how can we ever have an overwhelming sense of awe? That he is not only our creator, but also the God of our salvation. That he is Yahweh, the covenant God, the God who is near to us. The God who is nearby. And that's our second point. We do not simply call the law the law of God, but it is called the law of the Lord our God, the law of Yahweh, the covenant God. That's his covenant name. And by giving us that law, the Lord shows us that he wants to have a relationship with us. And he proves this by imprinting the law on our hearts by his Holy Spirit. And in this way, he renews us in his image. You might recall from our confession in Lord's Day 32 that it is that's what God's goal is for our salvation, that we are to be renewed in the image of Christ. And now, the miracle in all of this congregation is that the God of whom we are not allowed to make an image or a likeness, this God who is transcendent and infinite, he has made an image of himself. Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our image in our likeness. And how has the God done that? Well, God's goodness and truth, his wisdom and righteousness and holiness are revealed in mankind, in the creature that he made. And yes, That creature fell into sin. But after the fall into sin, God performed another miracle. For he allows man to be remade in his image. He renews this image through his son, Jesus Christ. You ever think of that? What God has forbidden us to do, he does himself. He makes an image of himself. We may not do that, but he may and he does. The transcendent God... The almighty creator of heaven and earth wants to express himself in human form. And in in a limited way then, but still in human form on this earth. That's an awesome thing, isn't it? That should make us tremble also in holy fear before God. That we are created in the image of God. of course that should never give us a reason to bring God down to our level. We must continue to serve him and to honor him as the incomprehensible God. And yet this God, this covenant God, has descended to our level. Because he communicates with us so that we can worship him. He makes himself known to us. And without that communication without that covenant communication god would forever be very far from us wouldn't he and we would know nothing about him but in the covenant that he makes with us we have everything right that's where we meet god that's where we we have fellowship with him and we can worship him and we may call him our father in heaven and we can trust him because he comes to us in grace and mercy He comes to us in his word, just like he came to Moses in in the tabernacle. He comes to us in Jesus Christ. In Christ, God, who dwells in unapproachable light, has become approachable for us. And that's exactly what the second commandment calls for. Not for us to make an image of God, but for us to approach God. And to worship him according to his word and so then when we worship in our worship services in our, in our Bible reading and our prayers are, are much more than religious activities they become times and places in which we meet God when we have communion with him and then our whole life everything that we do is it's, it's, it's not empty but it belongs to him when we go to sleep and when we wake up we belong to him he's there And every one of our days belongs to him. That's how the second commandment calls us to live. And when we live that way, the Lord then also becomes the joy of our life. Living according to the second commandment means that in the Lord we have a firm foundation for our life. And peace and contentment because we have fellowship with him. Well, congregation, the congregation's second commandment reminds us that God reveals himself to us in his word, and that he is near to us through his word. And his revelation to us has been made complete in and through Jesus Christ. And since we are by faith united to Christ, our worship of God must also be according to his word and in agreement with it. So no self-willed worship. Right? We may not say, you know, God, is not, God won't mind if I do things my way. Neither may we say, well, that's what the Lord says in his word, but I'm sure he understands my circumstances, so, you know, I'm just going to do it this way. That is setting up an image of God. When we talk that way, we've put God in a corner, so to speak, and we've decided that we will determine for ourselves what he will allow us to do or not. We may not worship him outside of the boundaries of, that he has given us. And that congregation the Lord takes that very seriously. That's evident from the promise and the threat attached to this commandment. In this commandment God says he will punish the children for the sins of the fathers. To the third and the fourth generation of those who hate him. That means that sometimes the consequences of sin are felt through the generations. If parents go astray from the Lord. Children usually stray further. And the next generation is lost completely. And why is that? Well, that's because to a large degree, children see God through the image that their parents and other adults in the congregation portray. And that's why it's so important for us as parents and grandparents to it and the adults in the congregation to give the children of the congregation the right image of God, and the right teaching of God. It's a lot more important than giving them piano lessons or signing them up for hockey. Those things are all well and good. But nothing beats the importance of training covenant children to be faithful believers and living members of the Church of Christ. And it's not just the parents who have this responsibility. As Congregation of Christ, we are collectively responsible for the children in the congregation to teach the congregation about who God is and to model it. But the second commandment also includes a promise, a promise that God will bless the faithfulness of parents. He will show his love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. Right? Here, as parents, we are reminded of the vows that we make when we present our children for baptism. We promise to instruct our children in the word of God and to have them instructed therein to the utmost of our power. And because the Lord is faithful to his covenant promises, he will bless you if you keep your promises. He will bless your children and your grandchildren for a thousand generations. Isn't it a beautiful example of God's blessing when you could sit in church with your grandparents and your grandchildren? It's evidence of God's faithfulness. And again, we have to keep in mind here, God is not just addressing the parents, but the entire covenant community. The covenant God makes with us is a covenant that addresses all the members of this community. So that makes all the adults responsible for the covenant children. The parents aren't the only ones who should be concerned with how the catechism classes are being conducted. And the elders are not the only ones who should be concerned with who is and is not going to the pre-confession classes, for example. And the parents are not the only ones who should be supporting Christian education. As a covenant community, we have a collective responsibility to support the education of our children, and that they are educated in the fear of the Lord. The congregation of the Lord promises to bless us when we are faithful to our covenant obligations, because He is the faithful one. He is faithful to His covenant promises. And so the second commandment requires our wholehearted devotion to God, our undivided loyalty to Him. And that should be evident in the way that we look after the covenant youth in the church and in the way that we worship God personally and as a community of believers. And let me just add one more thing. This wholehearted devotion to God should also be evident in the kinds of jobs that we look for, the further education we try to achieve, the relationships that we seek. The second commandment, for example, addresses the young people of the church when they start dating and courting. The second commandment demands that you are united in your worship of God. You cannot be divided in worship because the Lord is not divided. And he wants our marriages and our families to reflect this as well. So, division in worship results in divided families. And again, the harmful results of that is sometimes evident down through the generations. So, when it comes to boy girl relationships, the most important question is not is she good looking or how much money can he make? But does he or she serve the Lord? Does he or she love the Lord? Does he or she want to serve the Lord according to his word? And when we're looking for a job, the ultimate question is, how much money can I make? But can I serve God faithfully if I choose this career or accept this position? God blesses faithfulness in these matters as well, because he is faithful. He is faithful to those who put him first. If we are faithful to the word of God and we serve him according to his word, in the way of his covenant, then we may also pray for and expect his blessing. And then we will have lasting peace and an eternal future. Amen.